Ah, there we go. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. My name is Larry Kay. I'm a recovered compulsive reader from Chicago and your moderator this morning. Today is Sunday, October 24th, 2021. The uh, share ID numbers for Friday, October 22nd are the following. The uh, 7 a.m. Eastern Standard Time meeting, that number is 17,963. That's 17963. And the 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time meeting, that number is 17,965. 17965. This morning, A Vision for You presents What Does It Mean to Be Recovered? You know, when, when each of us embarks on this practical program of spiritual action, um, you know, we, we certainly have a mix of, of trepidation coming in and, and hope oftentimes as well. And each of us arrives to the rooms of Overeaters Anonymous, certainly with some degree of pain, both physically and emotionally. And, you know, it's, it's indeed rare that a fellow comes to their first uh, OA meeting, you know, motivated primarily by a desire to have a spiritual awakening. I know that wasn't the case for me, right? Didn't come here to have a spiritual awakening. You know, to be brought into alignment with a power greater than themselves. No, you know, rather what, what we, we come here because food and, and, and food behavior seem to have contributed to a massive level of misery and, and, and degradation and horror in our lives. Because after all, nobody navigates their way to OA on a, on a, on a lovely winning streak. You know, if we're, if we're fortunate, you know, we begin to learn about three essential things. We, we begin to learn about the problem in step one that sense of powerlessness and unmanageability. We learn about the solution to that problem in step two, coming to believe in a power greater than ourselves. And then we learn in step three how that solution is brought about. In other words, how, how, how does that solution get manifested in our lives? Which, of course, is working the program in four through, through nine, at which time we're Recovered. That, that's not my opinion. That's what it says in the big book. Uh, to, you know, to be among the recovered. <laughs> you know, the big book speaks again and again about the state of being. I mean, what, what, what does it even mean? And how do we separate the fact from fiction? Well, joining us this morning to provide some clarity based on her experience is Melissa C. And uh, from, Melissa C. is from New York. And, and beyond being my, my, my favorite grade school teacher, I mean, I brought, brought an apple. I, I, I'm sitting in the front row here. You know, masked she is, yet ironically beautifully unmasked, I find Melissa to be. Melissa has been a dedicated servant and advocate for recovery in Overeaters Anonymous. So at this point, please join me in welcoming Melissa C. to the line. Melissa, good morning. Hey, Larry. Thank you so much. That was a beautiful introduction. And, um, yeah, <laughs> thanks for the apple. I'm always happy to take an apple. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> my favorite. Thank you. My favorite fruit of the day. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah, my name is Melissa C. I am a recovered compulsive overeater. I live in New York. And, um, you know, I I love this topic. Um, what does it mean to be recovered? And, um 
But before I'm going to delve into it, <clears throat> I always want to start off any talk, you know, about anything with a qualification, like even if it's a quick one, so that someone listening to me speak has the understanding that I have the required experience with the disease of compulsive overeating that I've suffered. And then I understand all about the terrible, terrible illness. So, you know, my 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 story is um, I was I think I was always a compulsive overeater, or at least I had all the right um, all the right ingredients to become one. Um, my earliest memories were all food related. They're all involving food. Um, and I, I shared one time with my husband about um, that fact that, you know, maybe that maybe that's what makes me different from you, babe. That's what I was explaining to him because, you know, all my early memories were all food-related and food was the center of everything. And he laughed and he's like, um, I have a lot of food memories as a kid too. And then I realized his memories are happy and mine are not. Mine are memories of longing that whatever was put in front of me I always had the sense that it wasn't enough. My eyes were always looking over my plate onto yours, onto something that was outside of what I had. I had this longing for more. And, you know, I think um, early on, you know, I let out a cry and someone stuck a bottle in my mouth and I said, this is going to work. This is good. Um, And and so I battled this sense of... um, never having enough and never getting my fill, um, which, you know, if that's your experience, either um, you fight like hell to get off the extra weight or you, you know, or you, or you are morbidly obese. And I was both, you know, I fought desperately to get off this extra weight and I spent years uh, of my life um, in battle, just constant battle, um, and I was on the losing end. You know, when I came in here, um, I was morbidly obese. I was suffering terribly. I was over 300 pounds. Um, and I had um, just all the physical consequences that someone gets when they're walking around with a lifetime of that kind of weight. But I also felt demoralized because I was a smart person with like all the resources at my fingertips and I should have been able to solve this. Like I just, you know, had so many lectures growing up, loving lectures, but lectures that you can do it. You put your mind to it, Melissa, you can do it. And, um, and here we'll we'll help you, you know? So I, I couldn't even blame everybody in my life. Although I tried, like I came, I really thought initially that Overeaters Anonymous, um, I remember the first time I looked at like a fourth step, I thought, great, now I'm going to find out what they did to me, <laughs> and I'll, and that'll cure me. Um, and that's really, you know, that's not what happened. But <clears throat> fast forward a number of years, I did find my way into recovery. And <clears throat> one of the um, incredible things that happened for me was um, – when I started calling into this meeting, it was on the the heels of um, one of the worst binges of my life, where I wasn't even eating sugar anymore, and I was char- I knew enough about recovery. I had been in and out of the rooms, and I was being overwhelmed by panic attacks, which I never had experienced in my life ever. 
and I was terrified, and I just kept trying to eat to quiet my anxiety, and it didn't work. The food stopped working, and I, but I did, couldn't stop trying it, and I knew it wasn't working, and yet I was like, why, why am I automatically going to something that I know isn't working, and I don't even like it anymore? It didn't taste good anymore. It didn't feel good anymore. At my last binge, you know, I shared that my mouth bled, and that to me was like the turning point where I couldn't live with the food and I couldn't live without the food. And right around that time, someone said to me, um, cause I had an excuse why I couldn't go to meetings, you know, basically I didn't want to go to my meetings because I'd gotten so fat. I had gained weight back. I didn't want to walk in there. I wanted to walk back victorious. Um, and the person, you know, but I had an excuse why I couldn't go to the meeting and, um, you know, it centered around something for my kids and, She's like, you know, there's phone meetings. And I started dialing in um, to this incredible meeting, which happened to be exactly on my morning commute, which happened to be the time of day that I was in terrible anxiety and panic. And so that crazy voice in my head that kept telling me, you know, because the voice that I kept hearing was, you're dying right now. Oh, my God, you're about to die. You're about to die. Because that's what happens when you have panic and anxiety. And instead, your voices started replacing it. And I started listening. And I heard the word, um, you know, I heard the word recovered. And um, I I was first, I was like outraged. But I kept saying, what did they say? What did they say? And I was drawn in, and um, at that, you know, and I was drawn in in a way um, where I, I knew I was out of options, and I knew that no matter what situation occurred in my life, it always ended with me eating. Like, no matter what was going on, it always ended with me eating, and I couldn't stand it anymore. I started doing what I was told to do, and I stopped putting it through the filter of, does this make sense? Because I knew it didn't make sense that everything I did, everything I felt, always ended with me eating. Um, And so, you know, um, and I have to tell you, you know, if you follow the directions, I think we know the answer, right? It works. This program works. And um, so, you know, in in the, I want to go to a reading now that in the first edition of the big book. there's a story by Pat C um, called The Lone Endeavor, and it's actually, it was actually removed <laughs> from it. Um, it was removed from the second printing. And, and in the story, there's a quote. Um, so this mother read the short medical article with a heavy heart, for she was constantly on the alert to find something which might prove helpful to her son. The article gave only a vague hint of the solution found by many alcoholics, which is fully covered in this book. But the mother immediately wrote to the doctor, explaining her heartbreaking problem and requesting further information. She felt there must be help somewhere, and surely if other men had recovered from alcoholism, her son also had a chance. You know, so... In in my readings, uh, you know, uh, in that about that story, I read that what was significant about this particular story of this lone endeavor 
was he was supposedly the first person to recover without having any personal contact, but solely from reading the book. Like he, he got the manuscript of the book, he read the book, and he recovered. The sad truth is the man did not remain recovered. <laughs> and so that was part of why it was removed from the book, because when they went there to meet him, um, he was drinking. And, you know, and so I wonder, you know, is it because the book alone, although a powerful text, is not enough without human contact, you know? Um, and that that's a whole other topic, right, the importance of human contact. Um, so, you know, first of all, I want to be really clear that this topic, um, this idea of speaking about what does it mean to be recovered is not to invite controversy or, like, wish to debate the question of the verbiage, like recover versus recovering. And, you know, although I have to say my initial, I, I gave this similar talk to this one time, and um I was initially motivated because the people there I felt needed to hear it, you know, and I was sort of in a in a um in an arrogant I have to say my perspective was a little bit arrogant because I wanted them I wanted to prove to them you could recover and I was gonna take out all this quotes from this book and prove to them, see you can, you can and actually, um, it was, you know, lovingly revealed to me, I believe through my sponsor and through my own prayer and meditation time, uh, yeah, you don't need to share that there and certainly with that sentiment because this is not to put ourselves in a spiritual hilltop, right? I don't say that I'm recovered because I'm somehow, you know, spiritually better or that I believe that my experience is unique and something that I've done better than other people. I, I just... Today, I wish only to offer hope to the still sick and suffering compulsive overeater, much like this mother felt that if others could recover, then her son had a chance. You know, and the knowledge that others recovered gave this mom hope. And that's my only intention. That's the only purpose for any of us to talk, you know, is to offer hope. And that is always... um, before I'm going to speak anywhere, I really, I meditate and I pray and I ask, I always ask God to just get, give me your words to the person who's supposed to hear them, right? Like, please help my words be the words you want and to land on the ears that they're meant to hear. And so, you know, you guys, when when I started listening and I heard recovered, you know, um, I believe that those words were meant to land in my ears, you know, that um, whether any of you knew it that day, you know, um, there was something powerful that happened. It gave me hope. So with that addressed, you know, first, can you actually recover, right? Is it true? Can someone recover? And um, <clears throat> in the title page, it says it, that this is a story of many thousands men and women have recovered from alcoholism. And you know, in the first edition, it says a hundred, but by the fourth edition, it says many thousands. You know, so it's actually on the title page. You know, clearly that's saying just exactly what's going to be covered in these pages. You know, a title, it tells the reader what they're reading. And, you know, it's an advertisement for the book. It's a way of selling the book. Um, in the forward to the first edition, it says we have Alcoholics Anonymous are more than 100 men and women who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. To show other alcoholics 
precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of this book. For them, we hope these pages will prove so convincing that no further authentication will be necessary. We think this account of our experiences will help everyone to better understand the alcoholic. Many do not comprehend that the alcoholic is a very sick person, and besides, we are sure that our way of living has its advantages for all. So, you know, now I'm being told what I can be recovered from. What is it that we're recovered from? A seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. And I thought that, for me, I really thought that this food addiction was going to be something that I was going to have to fight for the rest of my life. I believed the best that I could hope for was a recovery, you know, whereby I would learn some strategies for living, you know, for how I was going to suffer through the miserable state of denying myself the foods that everyone else around me got to eat. Um, I was hoping that my willpower would grow stronger. That's what I thought you guys were going to give me, really good willpower. And I had no interest or thought that my way of living was even remotely related to this condition. You know, I didn't understand that I was sick. I didn't think that I was bodily and mentally sick. I just thought I was fat, you know. And and how would my recovery possibly improve the lives of others? I just thought that by getting thinner, I would be happier, you know, the end. Um, and by the way, <laughs> I been thin at other points in my life, and um, my life didn't improve, you know, it didn't improve, I was just thinner, Um, but it goes on to say that nearly all have recovered, they've solved the drink problem, you know, and that's on page 17, so this tells me that the majority of the people who followed these directions have recovered, and that I'm being given a little more information about what's going to be solved here. The drink problem, right? The food problem is solved. And that doesn't sound like the struggling state of more willpower like I once thought. You know, and so if I have a problem and I'm being told that there's a group of people who once had this same problem and now they don't, like certainly my interest should get piqued, which is where, you know, you guys came in, by the way. You know, I remember, I really remember very well hearing Leia's voice and her message. I remember hearing Harlan's and Larry's and all these other voices that said that this was their reality. And I have to say, at first I thought you were, I thought you were a bunch of, like, blasphemous liars. Like, how dare you? How dare you? And yet I was drawn in. You know, I was intrigued by by a message that grabbed me and it inspired me and it called me to take action, you know, and so that's that's the purpose, right? Further on, you know, clear-cut directions are given showing how we recovered. And that's on page 29, right? That's what it says on page 29, clear-cut directions. So we're going to get directions, right? The text, the, this big book, it gives me directions and they're clear-cut. You know, <clears throat> I won't be confused by these directions, and it's not take what you want. It's not like leave the rest, right? If you want to recover and you're following directions to recover, then you need to follow these directions sequentially and precisely. Much like, you know, 
If you went to a doctor to receive treatment for any other disease, if the doctor reassures you, right, you can recover, but you need to follow a course of treatment, I would say, like, I I would probably look at the success rate of this treatment, you know, and if I believed that it was effective and what I was suffering from was fatal and progressive, then I'd completely follow the course of treatment and skip some of it because I didn't like it or do some of it and conclude, you know, well, all right, I didn't do it all, but you know what, um, yeah, this illness isn't something that anyone can recover from, right? I don't think I would put the same um, the same sentiment on another disease as this one. But the problem with the heart disease, with this disease of compulsive overeating, is that the sufferer is not so excited about the course of treatment, right? This um, this is a disease that is a form of insanity. We're told that a definition of insanity is a lack of proportion, an inability to think straight. And we're also told that insane reasoning wins out, right? So it's hard. This is a difficult problem, right, to solve. If the sufferer isn't excited about the treatment and if the the mental twist convinces the sufferer that the treatment is too severe and can't work, that's a hard problem to solve, you know, um, especially since the requirement is that the sufferer fully concede that they have no other options but follow this course of treatment. You know, so this is like a catch-22, but, you know, here's the good news. There is a power, right? That's God. And and God can override difficult problems like human insanity, you know, uh, what does it mean to be recovered, right? So now what does it mean, right? So first, right, I'm telling you, you can recover. Next, you know, I'm telling you how, right, by following the directions in the book, which are the steps. Um, and so now let's talk about what does it actually mean to be recovered? What is that like? You know, people, I remember asking um, a question when I first started listening, Um what does that mean? You know, what does it even mean? And that's a question that people ask often. What is it like to recover? How does life look? How is it different from what it was before? You know, um, so if, if you remember when I was telling you my story, I said that I had this mind that always convinced me to eat. No matter what, it always brought me back to food. And I say, like, I have uh, a type of senility, you know, it's food senility. It's not senility that centers on anything else but food. I, I fail to remember just how bad it gets every time I eat. Every time I eat certain foods, I couldn't remember with sufficient force the horrible pain that always comes after I succumb to the first compulsive bite. And it's like, I you know, for me, I say this disease is like a stalker. And it always hunted me down. You know, it's like the handsome, the handsome, horrible boyfriend. It gets me to open the door, right? It gets me to pick up the phone, and I've let it in every single time. And I would want so much to be abstinent. I really did. It was not, it was not that I didn't want this, you know, but the desire to eat was so overwhelming and powerful. And I felt like when I, 
I was abstinent only and not recovered, I felt, you know, for me, I've described it, it's like a powerful tiger. Um, And my willpower was the cage (laughs) that I attempted to keep the tiger in. And I was hoping, you know, that Overeaters Anonymous would get me a strong cage. And I thought, that's the best I could hope for. And I heard things at OA meetings that supported that idea. Like, people said that we have to take the tiger out of the cage three times a day, right, when we eat and get the tiger back in the cage safely. And um, what I came to learn is that is not the truth, right? That's not true because, um, you know, if I'm living with a tiger, the tiger's in a cage pacing back and forth, and the world feels like it's always rattling my cage, right, and poking the tiger, right, poking at me through the bars. And because this desire is so powerful, it's more powerful than me, more powerful than a cage, at some point it's going to bust through the bars and overtake me and I would eat. And I did it every time. You know, or it would convince me that the tiger is no match for me. You know, I'm much stronger and I can let it out to stretch a bit, right? Like maybe just on vacation it should be okay. This time I'll just get it back in safely. Um, or for the weekend, um, you know, but in fact, like this tiger is way stronger than me and I stand no chance of fighting this beast. And that's what it felt like to live with this disease. And so what does it mean to be recovered, right? Is my cage stronger today? Did I get stronger than the tiger? Actually, you know, what I say happens is that the desire um, has turned from a tiger into a kitten. And the desire no longer exists as powerful a beast as it once was. That's what it means to be recovered. Um, But that's just one aspect of this incredible gift, right? So most of us in OA are familiar with the nine-step promises, likely the ten-step promises too. And recovered means that you are experiencing these promises. You know, so... The promises associated with step nine are found there on page 83 to 84. We're going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. We'll not regret the past or wish to shut the door on it. We will comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace. No matter how far down the scale we've gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. That feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear We'll lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. Fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave us. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. So, okay, so today, right, recovered, I feel free, you know, free from the food. And most of the time, not all the time, I'm, I'm free from anger and fear. You know, I'm, I'm optimistic. I have, I have a basic belief that God has a plan and it's a good one. Um, I don't regret my past. I'm not ashamed of anything that I've done. You know, I really understand what it means to be serene and feel peaceful all of my experiences, you know, especially the painful and humiliating ones, 
are now powerful examples that I can share to help someone. You know, and I, I have the benefit. I use these stories when I work with sponsees and when I'm reaching out. You know, I've, I'll talk about breaking toilet seat after toilet seat and how I couldn't fit in, you know, the armchairs in my own kitchen. And that I felt humiliated every time I went on a plane and walked down the aisle and saw the looks of people and knew that they were wishing that they didn't have to sit next to me because my large body invaded their space. And, you know, and actually to feel apologetic for just being in the world, taking up too much space, that's a pain. And it cut me so deep. It filled me with such shame. You know, to feel unwanted to that degree and to believe that I deserved that. And today, you know, I say these are now my golden tickets, right, that I know gains me entry into my usefulness, you know. Um, Some of the stories that I get to share with people when I've worked with um, women and and, um, they have this step that's really painful, Um. You know, I too have done things, and um, and I think having had some shame, you know, full experiences, you know, not necessarily food and weight related, but just life related, makes me useful. One of my favorite paragraphs in the family afterward on page one twenty four, it says, "Cling to the thought that in God's hands, the dark past is the greatest possession you have." the key to life and happiness for others. With it, you can avert death or misery for them. So I don't feel useless, you know, anymore. I'm not spending day after day on the couch or sitting by the sidelines, you know, watching others living and feeling sorry for myself. You know, I'm an active participant in my life. I'm not afraid of people, of not fitting in or of being disliked and left out. Um, Not that this never happens to me, uh, and it does, right? But I don't fear it, (laughs) you know? In the moments when my feelings are hurt, um, I lean into this incredibly loving creator who's there in those unsettling moments. And my God gives me strength and comfort and resources. And I I don't feel consumed by thoughts of me and getting my needs and desires met. I have trust that I'm going to get just what I need. You know, I actually genuinely find myself thinking about others more and more rather than being self-centered. I I do. I feel other-centered today. Today I have a much keener intuition. This is what it means to recover. I understand things without always a need for conscious reasoning. You know, situations that used to baffle me, right? Find me spinning my wheels, second-guessing myself, um, needing to take, I used to need to take like a public survey every time I made a decision from what color couch to get to like where to go on vacation, you know, everything um, to the big stuff, right? I needed like everybody to give me their, their input on it. And I don't do that anymore. I just somehow have this sense of knowing how to approach things. And And I know that, like, these things really are coming from God. I feel like, you know, if I I make a mistake, I believe in this incredible, powerful creator 
who can override my mistakes? I mean, if he can take away my desire to kill myself with food, he can, like, work around my human errors, you know. I'm no longer relying on my own human finite power, but on this infinite power of God. And, you know, then there's the promises associated with step 10, and these are on page 84 to 85. Um, We ceased fighting anything or anyone, even alcohol. For by this time, sanity will have returned. We will seldom be interested in liquor. If tempted, we recoil from it as if from a hot flame. We react sanely and normally, and we will find that this has happened automatically. We will see that our new attitude toward liquor has been given us without any thought or effort on our part. It just comes. That is the miracle of it. We are not fighting it, neither are we avoiding temptation. We feel as though we have been placed in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. We have not even sworn off. Instead, the problem has been removed. It does not exist for us. We are neither cocky nor are we afraid. That is our experience. That is how we react, so long as we keep in fit spiritual condition. And then further down the page, it says, if we have carefully followed directions, we've begun to sense the flow of his spirit into us. To some extent, we have become God-conscious. We've begun to develop this vital sixth sense. So now looking at those, you know, that those ten-step promises and what came afterwards, what it spells out is that I'm not fighting. I don't fight nothing, <laughs> no fights, not with my weight, my food plan, a suggestion my sponsor makes my employer, my family, my fellows, sponsees, and I certainly don't fight with food, right? My job is to be a peacemaker. That's what it says. And, like, I say, like, what a miracle to not be fighting the desire at all, to not be fighting. I feel sane today, right? I'm not interested in food that was once problematic for me. It doesn't even look appealing or enticing, you know, I have to say, like, the fried foods, those sugary items, heavily processed things, you know, artificially sweetened items, they don't even look tempting anymore. Like, that that was done to me, not by me. You can't make yourself not want something. Um, I used to love anything deep fried. Like, we had a joke that you could pretty much throw anything in the fryer and it would be good. And now today, you know, um, my husband wants to use the deep fryer, right? Because in my house, Sunday is like football Sundays, and he wants to, like, you know, make his chicken wings and his whatever stuff. Um, God love him. He puts it on the back porch, <laughs> like rain or shine, because the smell makes me feel sick, you know. And um, God is, and it's not that he's doing it to, like, keep me from having to smell it. I actually don't like the way it smells anymore. You know, God has changed my taste in food. Um, Someone, like, recently reached out, and I get this a lot, asking me, like, well, what do you put in blank to make it taste good? And I actually laugh. I'm like, I actually think blank tastes good. You know, I like raw veggies. I'm not lying. I'm not trying to, like, whistle in the dark and fool myself. It's the truth, you know. Um... My kids always laugh and they roll their eyes at me because I I go on and on about how beautiful my veggies look, right? I love 
it's like a, I, I say it's a rainbow from God. Look how colorful my plate is, you know, and I mean it, you know, when I'm tempted, um, I can recoil. I can react and respond appropriately. You know, I find for me, like one of the most humbling acts I can do is, um, you know, I have a weighed and measured food plan. That's just for me. You know, everybody has this different thing. But in the morning, I weigh out my, my berries. And one of the most humbling acts I do is when I take off the extra berry from the scale because it goes over the amount. And what I what I love about that act is it's my act of surrender. It's my demonstration of an absolute acceptance of my disease and I actually delight today in the surrender. I don't feel annoyed by it. It, For me, it symbolizes the humility I'm going to need to face the day. Because if I don't even know how many berries to eat, then I best be open to the understanding that there's going to be a lot of other things that are going to come my way that I don't get either, that I won't understand either. You know, the food senility that I explained earlier that I from it's been healed you know i feel sane and normal around food which seems like a contradiction for someone who weighs and measures their food and brings their food many places you know um i find myself at social events at times and family gatherings and i'm blessed i have this i have a large family and some of my family members they understand my food and recovery thing and they're actually, like, really pretty respectful about it because all of the directions that I explained I explain to them pretty clearly what it was that I was up against. Um, but they're pretty funny about asking me things or about offering me up as some sort of an expert <laughs> on what has sugar. And um, and they'll they'll offer me up as someone who has incredible willpower. And I've, and I've sort of tried to explain, but it doesn't really matter. They don't have to get it, you know. And they'll they'll ask me questions about, is this healthy or unhealthy? And I'm not an expert, right? I'm no expert. Um, although I've been on every single diet, so you could probably quiz me on the calorie count of just about everything. Um, but, um, you know, I, I I was recently someplace, and, um, and this has happened again and again. I have my brother, one of my brothers, um, and a couple of my nephews have questioned me about the fact that I don't treat myself every now and then. And um, by the way, this was my brother who, he's not a compulsive overeater, but he, growing up, he used to hide bakery cookies underneath his bed. And one time, my siblings were all joking around, and they asked his wife, hey, does Wayne still hide, you know, um, rainbow cookies under under the bed? And she looked at us like we were crazy. She was like, uh, no, he keeps them in the kitchen. And I thought, of course he does, because he doesn't live with me anymore, right? He, that wasn't him. That was his response to me. But, you know, so what happened was, um, you know, my brother said, uh, him and his him and his sons were suggesting that I'm so disciplined that I should be able to eat a small amount and then not have it until the next big occasion. You know, and they're like, Come on, you'll you'll be fine. You could have it. You could totally have it. You could so have it. And they don't get it and they don't have to get it. You know, and I um and I'm not fighting with them and it's like and it's not even a debate or an argument. I lovingly go right to 
oh, my God, look how big your grandson got. He's so cute. And everybody's off the topic of me and my plate, and it's fine, you know, because they might see my way of eating as insane and abnormal, and that's okay because I don't fight, you know. And, and I, I can tell you today that this level of care and protection, that's not insane. The level of care that I take isn't because I'm crazy. It's because I'm fully aware that I have a deadly and progressive allergy. And so the sanest thing that I can do is to respect this allergy 100%. And here's the thing. Respecting it has become automatic and easy. I just do it, you know, with the same resistance I have to doing any of the other personal care preparations I make. You know, I brush my teeth in the morning, right? I, um... I have blood pressure medication I have to take. I take that. There's no thought about it. It's just automatic, you know. When I'm in places where people are enjoying food, I can be there. You know, I'm happily present. I'm focused on people. I'm not feeling tempted at all. I feel safe. I feel neutral. Um, those things don't evoke any emotional response. I don't have to avoid parties. I don't avoid celebrations. I'm not nervous. You know, here's the thing. It wasn't so much the parties for me when I was in the food. It was when I was alone in the house with the food. I could be alone. This house could be filled to the brim with all kinds of stuff. I'm not nervous when I'm alone in the house with food, but I'm not cocky about it. You know, I can frost a cake. I can scoop out ice cream for a family member, but I don't seek out these opportunities to prove anything to anybody. You know, the 10-step promises also makes it abundantly clear that if I want to have this, then I need to do work. I need to remain spiritually fit, which, again, is a whole other beautiful topic um, that we could talk about, you know, forever, um, which is really what this is all about, being spiritually fit. But today, I, I feel an awareness of God in my life, and I feel the flow of his spirit into me, which is exactly what I needed all along right? That when I was that little girl who looked off my plate and onto your plate, what I was really craving was a filling up inside. I needed a close connection with power, right? I needed something to save me from powerlessness, you know? So there's the promises also that are associated with the 11th step, and those are on page 87 to 88. And what used to be the hunch or the occasional inspiration gradually becomes a working part of the mind. Nevertheless, we find that our thinking will, as time passes, be more and more in the plane of inspiration. We come to rely upon it. We are then in much less danger of excitement, fear, danger, anger, worry, self-pity, or foolish decisions. We become much more efficient. We do not tire so easily if we are not burning up energy foolishly as we did when we were trying to arrange life to suit ourselves. So, you know, early on in recovery, I would get these occasional moments where I would just know the right course to take. And it kind of like, it, I remember it threw me for a loop because, you know, a situation would come up, whether at work or at home, and I just found that while I was scratching my head wondering what to do, an idea would pop into my brain in a way that I hadn't been able to do before. And it was like, wait, 
oh my gosh, how did I how did I not think of this before? And you know, so here like more and more now, really what I'm finding is I'm scratching my head less and less. You know, that intuition, it's become a working part of my mind. I think differently. I see God's direction, and I feel God's direction more and more. You know, in step two, when we agnostics on page 55, we're assured that the consciousness of your belief is sure to come to you. Well, that's what it means to be recovered as well. I'm awake to my own beliefs, and I can rely on my brain to think clearly. I don't get as excited or frightened or angry or overly emotional as I used to. doesn't mean I don't ever get those feelings, but, you know, my friend explained to me once when I was talking about it with her, and she said, yeah, it, your bounce back is quicker. Yeah, so I get those feelings, but I bounce back quicker. You know, growing up, um, my parents would tease me about the way that I would always get so worked up. I was always told that I was emotional. I was overly emotional. You know, my nickname was Desdemona. Like, I was this emotional and tragic person. I was always, um, everything was a tragedy, you know. And today, I'm steady and calm. Things don't freak me out, you know. People are like, oh, you're so mellow. You're so laid back. And I have to tell you, that was not who I was. You know, 11 years ago, it's actually more than 11 years now. It's, um, oh, geez, it's 12 years. My dad has passed. And when he first got sick, my mom and my older brothers and my sister, they kept that from me for a few days, right? I was, you know, in my 40s. (laughs) And they didn't tell me, like, I was a little child. And when I found out, I was immediately angry. <laughs> you know, I acted like a child when I found out, and I questioned, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you tell me? And my mother said, because she didn't want to upset me. <laughs> you know, I look back at that now, and and I remember at the time thinking, you didn't want to upset me? Like, I'm not allowed. I thought what they were saying was, you're not allowed to be upset over your father's being sick. But really what it was was that it was exhausting dealing with my over upsetness because it was it was the pro I became the problem, you know, for all those people. It must have been exhausting to live with an overly emotional testimony, to have to contend with me. You know, I'm not that person anymore. Today, you know, the funny thing is, right? My mother says, I don't know if this is a blessing or a curse, but my mother says that she has to run everything by me first because I'm the level-headed one. And by the way, my siblings have all decided that that's my role. (laughs) That Mom, you know, my brother said mom is to pretty much run every question or issue past Melissa um, because she knows best about the decisions that need to be made for mom. And I kind of laugh here. I think, yeah, that boy, that was convenient. But, um, you know, but there is a certainty that I'm mostly calm, you know, about the facts. Um, and, and you know, these things with our parents, um, with my mom, you know, I've been in a pause where I was waiting for the right answers to come because uh, I went down to see my mom and, um, 
right, uh, geez, it was, I hadn't seen my mom for a while. She was in Florida because of the pandemic. Hadn't been there. And I was talking to her and FaceTiming her. And, but I got, I was finally able to travel and to get there. And it was, I was faced with a situation that was definitely frightening because I saw my mother could no longer live alone. And, um, and I didn't know what to do, right? And, um, and I didn't know if what I was seeing was my, just like, is this really true? Is my mother really losing her ability to live independent? Or am I imagining things? And thank God I have a clear recovered mind and a process that I could sit in quiet meditation and things were revealed to me because I was available to see and hear them. And then I was available to have dialogues with my siblings. And, you know, um, while I'm not God, I can't, you know, solve these big problems. I believe that God, God's got this, you know. And um, I trust that the right answers are coming, you know. The true definition of what it means to be recovered is that I've had a spiritual awakening, a personality change which has rewired my heart and my thinking, and it's driven out the desire to eat compulsively. You know, um, in the family afterward on page 132, it says, we think cheerfulness and laughter make for usefulness, and outsiders are sometimes shocked when we burst into merriment over a seemingly tragic experience out of the past. But why shouldn't we laugh? We have recovered, and we've been given the power to help others. So, okay, so when you've recovered, you're given power to help other people. And we're cheerful, and we laugh, and we're useful. So I'm I'm genuinely cheerful today, you know, and it's not a fake smile, but actually cheerful a good deal of the time. I laugh over the things that used to rock my world. Somehow I've got a better perspective on things. You know, the other thing that this paragraph points out is that I'm useful. I have something to offer others, you know, my fellows, my sponsees, my kids, my husband, the people in my world. Um, You know, the family afterward also goes on, page 133, it says, we who have recovered from serious drinking are miracles of mental health. And we have seen remarkable transformations in our bodies. <laughs> Hardly one of our crowd now shows any mark of dissipation. And what this paragraph reassures me is that we have improvements that are visible in our appearances, but also in our mental wellness. You know, and so when I when I share on Zoom meetings or with people face to face, I show my pictures because it's a visual representation of what it means to have a miracle, right? And um, and I'm blessed in the fact that I have had a physical transformation. And what makes it blessed is that it can be useful for other people. It allows somehow people listen a little, I think a little more intently when they see a physical demonstration of it. It just, it, it's it's a good opportunity, you know? It's, it's, a, it's an asset today. Um, you know, and also our mental wellness. By the way, our mental health improves. It doesn't mean, by the way, if you suffer from any other um, 
illnesses, mental health conditions, please do not misconstrue my words and say, get off your medication, no longer seek outside help. I do not mean that at all. In fact, we're told good doctors, you know, we don't underestimate them, the value of good doctors. And what I have found out is that when, when I have had problems and have gone to therapy and needed outside help, the course of treatments were more successful, right? I was more able to apply the suggestions made, and they worked, right? Um, my body does not resemble the way it once looked. Um, my mind does not work the way that it once worked. Um, I say, like, it's an incredible thing to go in my closet year after year now and know that everything in there fits me. I don't need to worry when I pull out something that I wore last year or four years ago or five years ago or more than that. Um, you know, when, when, when sponsees or new people worry about their weight, and if they'll ever lose weight or be a normal, healthy body weight, um, I can assure them that, you know, if they follow this course of treatment, if they're abstinent and focus on their recovery, then we believe in a miraculous God that will transform our bodies. This is a God of miracles, and he has important work for us to do. And I say God wants my body to be strong and healthy, and to appear in a way that tells others the good news, that this works. I don't have to be a model, but I have to have arms and legs and a mouth and a mind that works, right, so that I can do his will. Um, in the story Keys to the Kingdom, it also demonstrates what it means to be recovered. It says, so I went to Akron and also to Cleveland, and I met more recovered alcoholics. I saw in these people a quality of peace and serenity that I knew I must have for myself. Not only were they at peace with themselves, but they were getting a kick out of life, such as one seldom encounters except in the very young. And I just love that idea about, you know, having a kick out of life just like the very young. Because, you know, I often share with you guys that I'm a second grade teacher and we were kidding around before the meeting began that Larry's the substitute teacher today so we can all run amok. But, um, you know, I, I, I teach second grade, and what has happened to me as an educator as a result of these steps is unbelievable. I am truly, I have to tell you, I am not the superstar of my building by any means. I'm not chasing down praise or accolades. I that used to be my God, you know. I stopped looking at my class's test scores and comparing them to other classes on my grade, worrying what their failures and successes said about me. That's what I used to do. I actually had the code one time that I could get in. This was crazy. And I could see everybody else's test results. And I would compare myself, my class, what it said about me, and I worried you know, and I had to do better than other people. And I don't, I don't teach like that anymore. I'm genuinely interested in my second graders as human beings. They're not little data points that measure my worth and value. And what this means is that I am actually free today to teach, you know. I've fallen in love with the craft of instruction. I have fun with my kids. I laugh. I smile. I do messy crafts. 
I make a point to address each child every day, which escaped me for years. I realized there were years that there were children in my class. I don't think I said hello to them on a daily basis, just a handful, the ones that were a problem and the ones that were the star. But there's all these other children in between. And today I, I greet them like, like, like human beings that they are. You know, I, I have Friday afternoon dance parties where I get up and I dance and we goof around and we have fun. And I know today that my district and my principal, although I work for them, they're not my real employers. I work, I say, first for my own family, right, so that I have an income to provide for my own family. But second, I work for my students. They're, they're who I work for. And then for their parents. But actually, I have a true employer. That's what it means to be recovered. And that one is God. And if I invite him into my classroom, if I invite him into my mothering, if I invite him into my sponsorship and my sisterhood and my in everything, then he would have me teach and love and do and parent and behave in the way that he would have me do it. And if I do it that way, I don't need to yell or be harsh or lose my patience. I can be pretty calm about it. Um, and I say this is how we're meant to live. You know, this is what it means to have a loving creator, you know, who to me had this in mind for me all along. Um, today I feel peaceful and serene, and I enjoy the life that I've been given. And with that, I will pass. Oh, Melissa. Well, let me let me first say only uh, 262 more days until till summer break. So just right around the corner. Um, Melissa, thank you so much for your compassionate, you know, down-to-earth message of hope this morning. You know, I don't, I don't know – you know, how effective you are in shaping young grade school minds, but you're you're definitely shaping an old, dopey, impaired mind like mine. So thank you for that. We're going to transition now towards to the question and answer portion of uh, the, this morning. And so the way we're going to do that is go ahead. If you have a question, specific question for Melissa, we're just going to thank you uh, to accept questions only for Melissa, press star one and give me your first name and last initial, and uh, and we'll get the lineup going. Mary Johanna. A. I heard Mary. Johan M. Johan. Lisa B. Lisa. Jody E. Stacy K. Jody and Stacy. Rick Robin K. Rick and Robin. Anybody else in this first round? Questions for Melissa? Okay, here's who I've heard thus far. I've heard Mary, Johan, Lisa, Jody, Stacy, Rick, and Robin. Did I leave anybody out in this first round? Okay, so we will get in. Go ahead and give your first initial so people can find you if you happen to be on the list. Uh, we'll start with Mary, followed by Johan. Mary, good morning. Good morning. Thank you, Larry, for your service. And thank you, Melissa, for your powerful share. My question comes with um, how did you initially in your early recovery um, not eat when 
you had feelings, how would you walk through processing uh, feelings as well as if you ever had um, a mental blank spot? Um, how did you walk through that? Thanks. Hey, Mary, thank you. Thank you for that question. So um, one of the things that was shared with me that I think is really helpful was um, that to put aside this idea of processing my feelings because, um, you know, for me, it, I, don't need to pro I don't need to process my feelings. Actually, what I need initially in the beginning is relief from my feelings, you know. And so what I prayed for was, um, I, I, by the way, prayer. Whether I believed it or not, I prayed to a God, or someone said recently, I prayed to a God that I didn't believe in until I believed in it. And that's what I did in the beginning. I prayed, I asked for a thicker skin so that I stopped feeling so much. Because if you remember, I'm Desdemona. I felt everything tragically. Um, and I leaned, you know, I worked the steps, but I, I used the tools. I made lots of phone calls. The phone was my friend. I leaned on other people. Um, yeah, thanks. I hope that helps. Thanks, Mary. Okay, next up we have Johan followed by Lisa. Johan, good morning. Hi, good morning, Larry. Uh, my name is Johan Ann, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater in Sweden. Thanks to the guys that are doing service here, and thank you so much, Melissa. That was amazing. That's brilliant. Thank you so much. And I was uh, wondering, um, what do, you, how do you work the program on a daily basis to stay recovered? What are your routines uh, day by day to stay stay recovered, one day at a time? Thank you. Hey, Johan. Sorry, I was muted and unmuted. Um, so I, I follow the directions in the book. I mean, my, my daily routine, I wake up, I pray, I meditate. I spend like 30 to 40 minutes of quiet prayer and meditation time with God. I study the big book. I, you know, I, um, I like to study what we're studying together on the line. So, um, you know, I, I, I reflect on the paragraph. I do my own personal writing and reflecting on it. Um, I commit my food at that point, by the way. That's part of my that's part of how I stay. I write my food down for the day when I'm done with my prayer, meditation, my writing, I send my food. I work with sponsees. I have a lot of people that I that I sponsor that I work with. I um I do a I do ten steps. I have a nightly review. I share them with um sponsees that have recovered and with a recovery partner and my sponsor. Um, I participate in big book studies, you know, where I work to share the message um, with other people. This really has become um, a huge structure of my life, and I practice these principles. I mean, I really practice these principles in all my affair. When I get upset by something through the day, I pause. You know, I invite God in. I do a 10 step. Um, yeah, hope that helps. Thanks. 
Thank you, Johan. So we have next up, we have Lisa followed by Jody. Before you go, Lisa, I just wanted to mention, I heard that uh, perhaps uh, Sigrid, Sigrid F may have given her name. So I'll put you, Sigrid, if you're still on at the very end. So Lisa, good morning, it's your turn. Hi, Melissa, thank you so much, Larry. Thank you so much too. The noise in the background is my son, so that's me. Um, my question, Melissa, to you is, can you describe your conception of God? It seems like you have a lot of faith, and I'd love to hear like, how big your God is or how you describe the God that can you know, make anything happen. Or I don't want to put words in your mouth, of course, but like, how you, can you give me your conception of God if you don't mind? Oh, my gosh, that's like such a huge question. It, you know what? My conception of God is probably too big for words. How's that? My God is like a shape-shifting, ever-changing, fills in every need. I mean, for me, like, it starts with this concept of I needed, like, a BFF. I needed a best friend, like a ride-and-die, got my back no matter what, awesome, amazing, powerful friend, you know, and we're told, you know, in, in the text, it talks about this um, infinite power and love, and um, it talks about this concept of my conscious companion. So, uh, yeah, God is, God is this friend that's got my back, and one of the things that I've done that's helped me in, in tight spots is, um, you know, when I really need to feel God's, like, connection, like a, just a very mundane kind of feeling of a friend being there. You know, if you've ever sat under a table, um, or not under a table, but you've sat at a table and you've had like something happen where a friend kind of gives you a kick under the table, like, I can't believe this is happening. Kind of like my husband and I will do this to each other when, when we're at a table and someone's having this political debate that we just can't stand. Um, we'll kind of give each other this little kick under the table, which means like, I'm here with you. I got your back. Um, I've been able, when I'm in a tough spot, I take my right foot and I tap it on my left foot and I just feel like, okay, there's God right there with me. He's got my back. I'll pray for a little tolerance. I'm not alone. Um, yeah, I hope that helps. Thanks. Thanks, Lisa. Okay, next up we have Jody followed by Stacy. Good morning, Jody. Good morning, Larry, and good morning, everyone. This is Jody E., gratefully recovered in California. Thank you so much, Melissa, for a very clear and inspiring talk this morning. You mentioned uh, your father dying about 12 years ago. When my father died, it was a big shift in my life, and I'm wondering if you think that your father's death had something to do with you getting willing and ready to get abstinent is that what you were might have said no you know what oh my gosh i love that and you you sort of brought me back to something that i i i'm glad i'm getting an opportunity to share you know one of my um experiences was um in step two where i heard my father's voice in my head and um I, um, yeah, I do think that there was something powerful about my, I don't know, you know, it, it, it came pretty close afterwards that I, that I got well with this disease. You know, my, um, <clears throat> my, my, I had a struggle with step two and it was a quick, 
it, I have to tell you, it was a quick struggle because I really didn't struggle much once I decided to do this. But what happened was I, I had this thought, and I remembered reading, you know, Bill's story, Why Don't You Form Your Own Conception? And I remember having this thought, and I said, like, okay, you just told me that my brain is broken. Like, you just spent all this energy in step one explaining to me how my mind is broken. And now you want me to use my broken mind to create a god? This makes no sense. This this is ridiculous. What do you want, you know? And I heard, like, my dad's voice, and I... I'm not, like, hallucinating. It wasn't, I didn't really hear my dad's voice, but it sounded like my dad's voice, and it was in my brain. And my dad said to me, don't be so smart. <laughs> you don't, you know, you want to get well or not. And that was, a, it was like, that was the way that my father would have spoken to me. So I think, I think my loving creator knows the exact right voice to communicate with me at a time when I need it. And I think maybe there was something, you know, about my dad's passing that um, maybe made me maybe more available to to recover, you know, to do this thing. Thanks. I hope that helps. I'll pass. Thanks, Jody. Okay, we have Stacy up next, followed by Rick. Stacy, good morning. Good morning, Larry. Thank you for your service. This is Stacy Kay in Colorado. And Melissa, I love you. Thank you so much again for sharing your experience, strength, and hope with all of us. Um, I was thinking about as we grow along spiritual lines, as we grow along, you know, understanding and effectiveness, if that term, well, it's a two-part question. Like if that term recovered, um, like changed for you over time or you've stuck with you know like just what the big book says um and also like when you were newly recovered just out of the steps getting you know and sponsoring did you ever doubt or question your that you were recovered maybe early on or or later in your recovery that's it Okay, so I'm just going to, like, make sure that I got it. So, one, have I questioned, did I question whether I was recovered, and has my definition of recovered changed in time, right? That's So, I, yes. Yes, my, 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 yes. Yeah, okay, good. Awesome. Hey, Stacey, I'm really, I'm, I love hearing you. Hi. Hi. <laughs> um, hi. So, um, yeah, my, of course, yes, my definition of recovered has changed. I think in the beginning it was like, holy smokes, wait a second, I don't want to eat? This is this is crazy. How did this happen? You know, and then it got quickly replaced by, holy smokes, I really genuinely want to help other people, like for real. Like this isn't just I'm doing it because uh, it's going to keep me from eating. I actually want to. Um, and that kind of floored me, you know, this idea that, now that I've recovered, I want to help other people recover, right? That's like, that felt very new and different. Um, and that I began to see it as incredible gift and a responsibility. It came, it's a gift that comes with a, with a mission, with a responsibility. 
Um, and did I question it? Um, for seconds, I would say, hmm, is this like, is this some sort of trick? Is this like a cult, like a hoax where, um, where um, I'm being fooled into thinking I don't want to eat anymore and it's sort of like we're all falling for the same thing. I had those thoughts for a minute and then it was also kind of replaced by this, who cares? So what if it's a hoax? It's actually working. It's the best hoax ever. Everything's getting better in your life. If it's a hoax, go with it, right? Um, Yeah, so I would say, you know, I did have those thoughts, and my recovery, my definition has changed. Thanks. Pass. Thanks, Stacy. Okay, next up we have Rick, followed by Robin. Hey, Rick, good morning. Good morning, Larry. Thank you so much, Melissa. Um, you know, one thing you said really jumped out to me is that, you know, you had a new employer, and that one is God. You invite God into everything, uh, and to teach, to love, to do, to parent, to behave, as uh, God would have you do. And, um, you know, going through the day, do you find yourself uh, not doing those things, catch yourself where you don't feel like you are teaching or loving or doing or parenting or behaving as you think God would have you do? And and what do you do um, if and when that occurs? Yep, yep, yep. Hey, Rick, <laughs> it's good to hear you too. Um, yes. Absolutely, of course, because I'm human, right? So I I fall at my selfish little desires, my fears, they come they come bubbling up. I mean, you know, I yeah, I, I they they do. What do I do? I I do a 10 step. You know, I invite God back in. I think, you know, I ask God's forgiveness. Um I make mistakes, you know, like I said before my my bounce back is quicker. Sometimes I don't realize that I've fallen out of it, that alignment, until I go to, like, do my review at, at night. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I got I got worked up over something at work. I got – I started complaining to a colleague, you know, I, or I – yeah, I got into uh, looking at my boss and and worrying about her. Yes. I definitely were imperfect, right? I have a sincere desire to do better, but um, but I definitely make mistakes. And um, yeah, thanks. <laughs> I'll pass. Thanks, Rick. Okay, we have Robin, and then I I believe uh, Sigrid. If you're if you gave your name before and I didn't hear it, so Robin, good morning. It's your turn. Good morning, Larry. Good morning, Melissa. I wish that you had been my substitute teacher, Larry, when I was growing up, and Melissa, that you're my (laughs) second-grade teacher, so thank you. (laughs) This is Robin. I'm a very grateful, recovered, compulsive reader in Costa Rica, and I just thank you so much, Melissa. God bless you mightily. I just loved everything you said. Um, Would you please share about how you work with sponsees. Do you help them with their food? I'm working with someone who's having some food issues and um, would really love to hear how you help somebody through that um, and your boundaries around that and also just some specifics about how you work and help people through the steps. Thanks so much. Sure, Robin. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot. Thanks. There's a lot. 
that's like a whole, you know, that could be a whole hour, um, how I how I help people through the steps. But, you know, I'll tell you, I do help people with their food, although I'm not a nutritionist, right? There are some excellent resources I can point them towards. One of the things that I do with people is, like, we go through their, we go through their food. We look at, like, what their problematic foods are. They make they make a list, you know, they put down on paper all the food and all the situations that they know one hundred percent they have a problem with, all the ones that they know one hundred percent they don't have a problem with, and all the ones that they're not quite sure about. And then they take the ones that they're not quite sure about, they stick them all over to the list of the ones that they're one hundred percent sure that they can't, because we're told we don't know the truth from the false. So I'll assume everything that we're unsure about is really just the disease looking for the escape hatch, you know. Um, and I, I look at the doctor's opinion where it talks about a definite hospitalization period is often required. And so we talk about setting up a hospitalization period. What's that going to look like? You know, if you're not going into a food rehab, we can create one with some real tight parameters, some real boundaries, some guidelines, things that they're going to follow. Um, I always suggest people get a nutritionist, you know, make sure that they're that they communicate with their nutritionist the things that they can't eat, you know, so that it's not just a general plan. That they, um, I like to look at people, since we do a lot of work now via telephone, before I work with someone, I want to have a Zoom meeting with them. I want to see them and speak with them. I might even, like, you know, ask them, like, <laughs> sounds crazy, like, can you stand up? Because I don't want to, I don't want to be, you know, co-signing on someone who, um, who might run um, along the lines of restriction and be an anorexic and be thinking that they need to, you know, have less food than they do. Um, so it helps me to look at people and, um, and, and plus I like the idea of, um, being able to see one another, being able to look eye to eye and talk and share. And as far as working people through the steps, um, you know, I, I use, I use the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, um, where there's readings and podcasts that they listen to and writings and we discuss them and we go through it and they do the steps. They work the steps through the big book. I also use the AA 12 and 12. And I know this is unpopular on this line, but I use the OA 12 and 12 also for certain aspects of the steps. I think it's got some really good stuff there that um, people with the food addiction can hear and understand. Um, So I use those three texts. There's a lot of you know, I have a lot of uh, non-negotiables for working with me, only in the sense that not because I want to be controlling, but I can only share what worked for me. And if it worked for me, um, then that's the only thing I can offer. You know, I don't ask anybody to do anything I don't do. Um, I expect people to listen to this meeting, to participate in the meetings that I participate in. I want them there. Um, so that we're getting the same information that we can um, then discuss and go through together. You know, like I, I've asked sponsees to listen to Vision for You daily, and um, and then we, you know, they can kind of report back what they've heard, what they've 
what they got, what they learned, um, and, you know, we can discuss it um, together. I, um, yeah, phone calls. People need to make phone calls. I, You know, there's a lot. And they work the steps, right? We work the steps through the directions that are given in the big book. And the other thing that I expect right off the bat, one of our first conversations, is that there is an agreement that they make that if they get out and they get well, they will sponsor no matter what. Like, no matter what. If they can't, now they might not feel equipped to do it at that moment, and I wouldn't expect them to, but they have to agree with me that when they when they do recover, they will work with others, um, and that... Um, and that then I, in turn, can share their number with people who will call me looking for help. And um, thanks. Hope that helps. Thanks, Robin. I don't know. When I used to have a sub, they would show a movie. I was going to do that, but I, and I thought, no, nah, it's problematic. I better not. But anyway, okay. Sigrid. Um, Sigrid, are you there? Did you give your name, Sigrid? A little birdie told me, but maybe not. Okay, so we're going to go to another round, I think our last round. So if you have a question for Melissa, please give me your first name and last initial, and we'll, we'll pose more questions for her. Press star one. Reggie O. Matt. Shauna. Sarah. Shauna and Sarah. Sarah. Reggie, yeah. oh. And Reggie, hey Reggie. I heard Shauna and Sarah. Was there someone, another Sarah? I heard Matt, Shauna, Sarah, and Reggie. Correct. Okay. I think there was just the one Sarah, but if you, if not, we'll grab another Sarah on the other end. Anybody else? Last round? Flipping the lights off and on? Okay. All right, let's start with Matt, and then we'll go to Shauna. Matt, good morning. Matt, Matt, press star one. Okay, for some reason I'm not hearing Matt, but maybe I misheard that. I thought I heard a Matt. Let's go with, uh, let's go with Shauna. Hi, first of all, I wanted to say that I really enjoyed your share. It was so, um, it was really nice to hear everything that you said. Um, I'm, I was never on like Vision for You really before, so I was wondering, I'm looking for a sponsor. Is now the time that I would say that or I would tell you later? Go ahead, Melissa, you could, you could take that. Yep. Sure, sure. So, so generally, I mean, I, you know, because this portion of the meeting is recorded, we don't put, like, people's numbers and things on here. Oh, I'm sorry. No, okay. no, it's okay. You're certainly allowed to ask a question. There's no um, – but we do have a portion in our daily meeting um, at the, uh, second, the end of the second hour where available sponsors will offer their names and numbers at that time. Okay. Um, also, if you go to the membership list, you know, a really good uh -huh. way – to um, access this, if you go to Vision for You webpage and you join and you go to the membership list, something that I think is really helpful. 
start paying attention to the voices of people who say things that you hear that are helpful. Call them. Okay. Right? That's a great way to find a sponsor. Fine. Thank you so much. And, again, I really enjoyed everything you said. Absolutely. Thanks, Shauna. Yeah. See see how I did that, Melissa? I just diverted that to the – delegated that to the teacher who handled it really well. That was really good, Sub. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, right? That's what a sub does. (laughs) Okay, next up we have Sarah, followed by Reggie. Hi, Sarah. Good morning. Sarah, press star one. Hi, this is Sarah. Thank you, you, Larry, for your service, and thank you, Melissa. It's so good to hear you. I, I, I've actually spoken to you on the phone, and I really appreciate your your candor, and I'm really just calling to say thank you. Like, I, I'm getting so much from listening to you. You you have such a clear way of um, speaking, and it's so direct that it, like, resonates. Um, so, really, it's just a thank you. Take oh, care. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, th- thanks, Sarah. We do appreciate that. That's what we pay her a little extra for that. But <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> another day of abstinence, right? Right, Melissa. Okay, next up, Reggie. Hi, Reggie. Good morning, Larry. Can you hear me? Yes, you're coming through perfectly. Okay, here I am again. <laughs> thanks, Larry, for your service. And Melissa, I. My goodness, I just feel like this beautiful, warm sun and light rain at the same time have fallen over me with recovery this morning. So thank you so much for your recovery and the perfect example you are of what you can do when you're recovered. So thanks so much. I have two questions. Uh, They're both about uh, working with sponsees. And the first one is, what do you do or how do you work with sponsees who... uh, keep whether it's once twice or six times I don't know how you do this but keep not going out binging but picking up foods that are not are clearly not uh, on their plan and the second one is how do you what do you what's your relationship with after they go through the step wait I missed the second part of your question you broke up um, the uh, the second question is, and how? What's your relationship with sponsees after you've taken them through the steps? Sure, sure. Okay, so the first part. What do I do? First of all, um, hi. <laughs> it's nice to hear your voice. <laughs> Thanks. Um, so you know, um, I think I think it's important for us to recognize that there's nothing that we can actually do, right? to make somebody stop eating compulsively, to stop picking up the food. Because if I'm powerless to my own disease, then I am 100% powerless to someone else's. Like, it would be preposterous to think that I can exert some sort of power to get them to stop. And I'll tell you what doesn't work, like being mean, <laughs> being someone who's like, who, who, who's like dismissive and cruel, right? Because Fear makes what I found is that um, fear fear leads to more dishonesty. When people are nervous and afraid, they're more dishonest. But I make it really clear to somebody that um, if they're picking up, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't let them just say, "Well, I ate a little bit off my plan." Like it says in you know in the story 
with um, Jim when, when they carefully went over. We carefully reviewed with him what happened. You know, and they worked with him. They It says in there, like, he picked up half a dozen times in rapid succession. We carefully went over what happened. So I carefully, like, I try to follow that direction. We carefully go over precisely what happened. And we see if we can put some things in place, you know, that, they, that they're willing to do. Because willingness, you know, until we have a spiritual awakening and we're given, like, the power really from God, right, from our higher power to to not eat those things, we're we're relying on some human power, guys. You know, and step two is where we first get a little bit of of a dose of, you know, God's power. But that it's really human power. So we have to talk about what are you gonna be willing to do to not pick up and and it, and something that I've done with people that they that sometimes is helpful course it's still human stuff is i have to make a list if they're struggling of all the things that they're willing to do before they before they take that bite before they take that extra bite um something you said that kind of um well i'm going to finish that idea so they take they make this list and their list should have at least 20 things on it that's what i tell at least 20 things, and it could be anything, mundane, but it's got to be stuff that you're going to do. That's what I tell them, something you're going to do. Now take that list and don't stick it in your notebook or in your big book and put it away in your drawer. Take the list, hand copy it if you have to. You know, write it over and over again, not like a punishment, like I will not, you know, I will not pull the little girl's hair like, like a school teacher, but a useful list that they can recreate and put it everywhere where the food is. Put it everywhere where the food is on the refrigerator, you know, on the cookie jar, on their dashboard, on their on their phone, you know, their home screen on their phone if they call in food from a group, you know, wherever it is. And I've had people say, Oh my God, I don't want my I don't want my husband or my mother in law to come over and see the list and then I find out, okay, not entirely willing. Because we're willing to go to any length. Sometimes that and then I would say, Well, if you're not willing to do that, how can I help you? Right? Sometimes that's it. Um, the, um, you know, so sometimes that's enough to help. But there's something else that you said that kind of called my attention, and that was this idea that um, she's not binging, but she's having these little things. I might say to the person, you know, if you're getting away with it, maybe you're not a compulsive overeater, and and maybe you need to, you know, go. Away. And that might sound kind of cruel and mean. But sometimes they're really not. It's not just licks and tastes and bites occasionally. Um, and maybe sometimes this idea that, you know, I'm going to come back in and help them is is not really helping them at all. And what do I do with sponsees once they, um, once they, you know, recover? We trudge the road together. You know, somebody said one time, I'm afraid I'm going to, like, lose this, you know, lose this thing, that this structure that we have. And we talked about, um, my, my sponsee and I talked about that it's like when you get the training wheels removed from the bike, you know, when you have kids and you take the training wheels off from the bike, now you can ride bikes together. And that's, like, the best part. That's what happens with sponsees when they recover. We do it together, you know. We could still be in touch. We could share each other's inventories. 
we can run things by one another, um, you know, it, it can be now we can move on to a different level. Thanks. I hope that helps. Pass. Thanks. Thanks, thank Reggie, you. for the question. Oh, thank you. And, and thanks to everyone who has uh, posed questions, and, and most especially Melissa, you were so generous with your time, and it was so down to earth and just a lovely um, uh, presentation this morning. Um, the, the share ID for Melissa's presentation this morning is 17,970. That's 17970. And we are going to close now from page 164 in a chapter in the big book called The Vision for You. And uh, then we'll, well, after that, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll provide uh, Melissa's, um, you know, her credit card number, PIN number. No, we'll share her contact information. So let me get to page 164. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order, but obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.